In the summer, I'm spending some well-deserved time with my family and I'm taking a break from podcast recording. But I've dug out some of the most popular episodes from the past back out for you so you can listen to if you wish. This week's throwback episode has been especially popular because Fiona McDonnell, one of our senior leader mentor, talks about her unique approach of finding a work-life rhythm. Enjoy the conversation. Welcome to the Big Career Small Children podcast. I'm Ferina Hefti and I believe that absolutely no one should have to choose between becoming a CEO and enjoying their young children. For far too long, amazing people have found themselves stuck on the career ladder when they have children, which leads to gender inequality and the same stale, often male, middle-class people leading our organizations. I want us to change this together. In fact, I hope that many of you listening to this podcast right now will progress to the most senior leadership roles possible, where you make decisions that make our world a better place. Beyond the podcast, I am the CEO and founder of the Social Enterprise Leaders Plus, which is all about supporting parents to get to senior leadership roles through equal career progression. So a very warm welcome, Fiona, to the podcast. I am delighted to have you here. And we've just had such a lovely chat (laughs) before we came on air. And I think it's time to continue the conversation on air. Why don't we, for the listeners, why don't we start with you saying who you are, who is in your family and what you do for work? Sure. So I'm Fiona MacDonald. I'm actually one of five daughters um, in a large family. And yet myself, I have two boys. Uh, I'm married with a Dutch husband and two young boys of eight and uh, 11. And what do I do for a living is a great question as to also who I am. So I'm a commercial leader. As currently, I'm a new author. And I imagine I'll be back in leading large businesses in the you know, consumer goods or tech space very soon. I'm also a active and passionate champion um, of diversity and getting young people into work through the charities that I work with, uh, and equally women into science uh, and engineering. If that's concise enough a description of who I am, my family, and where I'm at. Yeah, yeah, that's perfect. And you were obviously, you were a director at Amazon, which is a very interesting, I've I've never worked for them, but I imagine it's a very fast-paced, quite male-dominated potentially environment, and especially you were in sales or marketing weren't you so so very would have been a very I owned a business in Germany um I was I'm a general manager really so that was very what I did as opposed to sales and marketing and I started as an engineer so that gives me a bit of a, a tech capability and mindset really but it's a massive company I hesitate to say things like male dominated specifically because being an engineer I've been in the minority through education as well as many of the companies I've been rather than just uh, the tech companies although of course it is a challenge to get more women in but yeah it's a very different um, place and I I spent many years in consumer goods companies brands that actually are in my cupboards Um, I tend to choose places I work by things I use myself and stuff I have at home so I don't have to pretend to like them um, so I, I grew up in large organizations like Nike and Kraft and Kellogg's and stuff. And Amazon, actually, whilst being larger and different, was in the tech space. It was growing rapidly. It was being digital and not just talking about it. And that's what attracted me. And so I transitioned, if you like, from being in a less tech driven to a much more tech focused, but nonetheless still customer driven organization. And you told me that you only decided to, so it's quite a, it's a brave thing to do, isn't it? You basically just said, I'm going to take some time out. I'm going to write a book. But you said to me, you came up with the idea of writing a book 
because you were mentoring people. Yeah, so it, it has a strange source to it. I never had a writing a book on my career plan if I sort of had a firm career plan. I'm sure everybody has a book in them, but whether we find the time or dedication to do it is another question. But the actual topic, so the, the book is called Two Mirrors and a Tutor, which itself is a little bit random. And it was the title of a speech I gave um, in 2017 in Germany for, for International Women's Day. And I gave it a slightly different edge to put the sort of marketing world that I was in into the content around getting you know women networks together in order to sort of you know boost the communication but the stuff in there was actually originally about a career talk but rather than talking about my experience it was taking the transferable skills the lessons to make them usable by people because I was always frustrated at and equally sort of inspired when I saw other leaders give speeches of all the things they did and essentially the chance of those situations matching up with anybody in that audience is close to zero and whilst that's lovely to listen to it doesn't give any actionable stuff for people so I took very openly my career and started talking about it in ways that were a little bit more funny because I shared the thing the way it was you know literally the moments with the kids or the way I had ideas rather than this glossy director um, you know so that it kept it real and I translated it into stories that just made it easier to land and people gave me good feedback that they found it was inspiring and useful together. And so during the pandemic, as many people, you know, I was asking, what can I do to help rather than looking at my own career and what next? And I didn't give it a great deal of thought that it was risky. I mean, sure, time will tell whether that was a brave or a stupid thing to do. It doesn't feel either of those two, actually. But I decided that if I'm mentoring people all the time and developing people as part of my day job as a leader that I love, why should my words not be inspirational to people who don't know me in a book? And let me give that a go um, to be of use while we come out of the pandemic. Hopefully we're coming out of it at a moment where many more people than normal may feel stuck in their career and need a little bit of inspiration that comes from left field, really. And so that's where I set off on the journey about a year ago. Mm, interesting. Very interesting. And I'm, I'm just intrigued now because you said that uh, you had lots of stories um, and I want to draw some, some of those out. Do you remember when you found out that you were pregnant, which is now 12 years ago, I presume, with your first child? Do you remember what you... Oh, absolutely. Yeah. What, what did that make you think of? Did it feel like <laughs> it would have an impact on your career? Did you feel like it would have, it, it would make, it would be the end of your career or did you... Not really. I mean, I'd wanted kids for a while. I think as we chatted earlier, and I always had this vision of having a family. And yet, as years went on and I carried on in my career, that vision didn't emerge. And it, there is a moment in the mid-30s when I thought, will this happen? Will it not happen? But I'd already begun to imagine kids as opposed to them come as a complete surprise. But I actually lost the first one, um, as many people do. We don't talk about these things. So um, when I actually had got pregnant with Jasper... There was a mixture of, you know, oh my gosh, wow, and how precious is the moment? Because, you know, leaving it late in my 30s, I was also around uh, people of similar age to me who were doing the IVF and other stuff. And it was therefore luck and a gift to be pregnant at that stage rather than me think, oh, how do I fit this in? So it was a mixture of joy, you know, there's a bit of intrepidation. And then, of course, the practical reality, which is maybe what you're asking, of how am I going to fit in this completely new little life and do the J job? And I do remember thinking, I can't do these both. How can I possibly 
fit them both in because at the time I was a managing director um, in the south of Holland I was busy working with unions and all sorts of change programs it's a manufacturing company and I, I do remember thinking okay the, the commute and all the rest of this it's going to look very different and then fast forward to a few months later after I'd had the baby and came back to work on a after a very short four month uh, maternity leave because I was living in uh, the Netherlands these things uh, weren't as long as sort of a year out I went into the same role and it was the biggest productivity gain I've ever had. And I always cite motherhood as being the best thing that happened to me because I didn't have time to overthink the small things. And I got rid of the stuff that wasn't supporting me, but it wasn't conscious decision. It just didn't even stack up as a priority versus this little life that I'd been gifted to, to look after, if that's not too sentimental a story. <laughs> no, that's beautiful. I think it's so interesting, very often, I'm generalizing hugely here, uh, and then my point is a bit female focus, so bear with me, but very often I feel women are socialized to dot all the I's and cross all the T's and make sure everything is perfect. And we get, as women, we often get praised for working hard when we're in school and for being perfect. And then, I mean, no offense to any of the fellows on the program, but quite many of them are these high achievers who are always wanting to be perfect. And actually... What you're saying is it's made you just cut out the small stuff. And that is such an important thing for a leader, I think. It is. And I, 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 I don't use the word perfect uh, very often because I think that sets an ideal that's unachievable by, by literally definition of what it is. But to stop judging versus other people. And I know certainly when I was in the Netherlands in those early years of being pregnant and, and you know having children, um, it wasn't always the norm that everybody went back. And you have that sort of idea that you're failing at being a mom if you went back full time. Uh, although some of these things weren't expressed, it was a, the undercurrent of what mums did um, in Holland. Um, and equally, I loved what I do. I still love what I do. And, you know, I had to find my own compromises. There's it's, it's not to say there aren't any, you know, but then what things are you going to change or cut out? But these things weren't sort of made by thinking it in my head. They were sort of driven by gut feel in the heart where you go on what feels right. And I think before you put in those situations, you can overthink things and make them highly unachievable. And then in reality, some things just happen that way and you're OK with them rather than worrying about you know what is or isn't OK. But it does take a little bit more understanding what your priorities are to then not worry that the little the 20 percent email that you no longer do doesn't happen I think it's sometimes we put those ideas of perfection on ourselves, and if you sort of change what you're doing you find nobody actually noticed you were doing some of these things in the first place so getting used to the fact that you are potentially the only person hanging that high level of achievement on yourself is something that frees you up to do things very differently mm. Interesting. And correct me if I'm wrong, but you did get more senior after having children. Is that right? Yeah, I did. So I was managing director of a you know medium-sized firm um, when I went off and had my first child. And I came back from that maternity leave almost into a promotion. So I was I went up to head an acquisition in Poland. Um, you'll notice a thread of me moving countries and getting a huge amount of adventure and energy from it. So I, I relocated with a six-month-old baby, actually and went to run a business in Poland that was a newly acquired business. Um, my name was in the hat for that, I guess, um, given you know, my performance previously, my desire to proceed, but also my willingness to be mobile and my passion for languages and cultures. And so effectively, yes, I did. Um, um, although 
I had the option, you know, to go back into what I was doing. I opted for continuing rather than trading off what I was doing. Um, but I was lucky to have an employer who was thinking along, along those lines and a manager who reached out to me with that um, proposition whilst I was just about to return from maternity. Interesting. And you were full time for much of your career? Yes, I've always been full time. So, um, but yeah, I've, I've never not been full time. But, you know, when I went back, I laugh about it now because um, in the early years, I was not trying to be super mum. But if I look at the picture that probably gets painted. So I was breastfeeding again because I was lucky enough that that worked. It doesn't work for everybody. And I was still feeding when I went back to, to work. But such is the Dutch law that I had um, was given space to be able to express during the day and a fridge to store the milk. And I had my ice packs and my, you know, my mobile pumps and everything with me. And I did the whole thing backwards and forwards. Even on business trips, I took the whole rucksack so that I didn't lose my milk supply when I went my first business thing. And it, it does look a little bizarre to people you know, when I laugh about it like that, but that is the reality of choosing to maintain something that I think important and, you know, not worrying about what that might have looked like in reality, because it was probably highly inconvenient. But I talked with my team and, you know, those who are around me, and as long as they understand what you're doing and why nobody feels it's bizarre, because they, you know, applaud the fact that you're doing what you choose to do and, and fitting everybody in. So, yeah, <laughs> that's what I'm some of the more bizarre examples at the beginning. Mm. Yeah, and, and I think if you don't tell people, they will make assumptions always. People think. And if you don't tell people and keep, keep them involved and inform them. But not just that. Yeah, if I think for, obviously, for some of your listeners, depending on what stage they're in, I know I've had people in my team who've gone, you know, through um, early motherhood too. And there's a lot of people I've met who don't ask for the flexibility they need or for the support they need and therefore they but some of them just assume it's not going to be given and my advice would be ask you've got nothing to lose by asking and you find employers and support networks are far more giving than you might expect and it's not an unusual thing although we don't really talk about some of these things as openly as we could do there is a wealth of support out there for people and I think particularly now you know as we look at the complete landscape of new flexible working it would be a shame if people didn't ask for what they need because I'm absolutely sure a lot more can be done. I agree. We obviously have this nine-month fellowship programme, which I mentioned before, we came on there, which is for leaders for babies and young children uh, yeah. who want to progress their careers. And as part of that, we run sessions with their line managers. And I'm always astounded with how the line managers, actually, even, even those who maybe haven't thought about how to support parents much, how many of them, they actually, they want to help, but they have no clue what yeah. what the fellow or what the parent wants and really really surprising really surprising and just having that conversation and being forced to have the conversation is is incredibly powerful and um, you made some really interesting choices in your career so you were just this country hopping that you did and you touched on it in your book how do you choose what to go for yeah so there's a mixture of knowing sort of thinking with your mind and thinking with your heart I know that sounds awfully fluffy but the stuff where I think I like to do it and other stuff that just sets me on fire. And I think understanding what I, keeping the logic in perspective rather than just going with the heart that's on fire for stuff, you know, you put, you can weigh things up. But I've understood increasingly over the years what I'm good at, 
what I'm not good at, where I need developing, where I can still develop, but also the stuff that makes me feel complete, that makes me feel fulfilled. And it's the latter step um, that has fine-tuned what I've done. And I've also learned by not having certain things. So travel was something that I always, you know, did a lot of. And some people would say, oh gosh, you've got far too much travel. And I had a job with no travel once and I didn't like that. So I've, I've sort of seen both of them. But I've, you know, I like traveling, I like languages and I did a reasonable amount of backpacking, you know, or extensive travel sprinkled across my career and I loved it. And the idea of moving countries and having that culture and that language and that newness also with a day job feels a luxury as opposed to, you know, it's tough. And yes, relocating is, but if you get organized about it, you've done it before and you're not afraid of it and you're aware of the, you know, sort of short-term resilience that's going to need, then it's it's something that ticks the box that I have almost in the sort of hobby side rather than, you know, from work. And over the years, I've started pulling together the things I like, not just in a day job, but in life. And the more I do that, the more I have both of them together within the work sphere, as opposed to doing the the, the work and the non-work stuff, because, you know, hopefully we'll come on to that, but I really hate this sort of work-life balance concept. It's all life. Some of it's paid and some of it's not. And if you can have these things come together, you feel so much more fulfilled, you have more energy and you actually get better at stuff by just, you know, by, by definition. So I didn't sort of look at these things as why do I want them? I'd, I'd actually let my managers and the people in these businesses know that I was open for relocation, that I was looking to do these certain sets of countries. Um, and I'd chosen those because of my desire to keep expanding my horizons or experience new cultures or meet new people. And I still find it exciting. Mm, absolutely. And did you just naturally figure out what you enjoyed and what gave you energy or was there something that you did in order to define the type of things that you'd look for in a new role yeah so I've done I have done lots of things over the year and I actually call out some of the sources which I used in the book rather than suggesting I'm doing it all myself but way back at uh, the beginning as I said to you I sketched myself a mission it was, it was many years ago and I forget the real reason why I had done that it's almost trying to put myself into one sentence to go on top of my CV uh, and my mission was something like well it is you know about channeling my energy and enthusiasm to you know motivate other people and make a difference now that is what I hold to myself as a way of testing am I going to be doing that in any of these different roles and if not then I know it won't fulfill me but it can apply to lots of things. And then I started noticing in the different jobs I had, because I jumped around a lot at the beginning of my career, I noticed easily when I missed something and I noticed when stuff gave me a spring in my step. And so there's a mixture of using something like What Colour Is Your Parachute, which is a book that really helps you drill down on your skills and your preferences and stuff like that in tandem with listening to how you feel about stuff. That might sound, again, a little bit woolly about just listening to your you know, gut feel. But when it comes to the types of managers that work best for you or that you work under best, your gut feel is one of your best navigators to understand that rather than just reading something, you know, doing some theory about it. And so I use both of them together to help me decide what I like. But I, I've really worked on putting what I passionate about together with what I'm good at um, and when those two things are together I, I feel like I'm much more in the zone but the earlier half of my career I went along the lines of what I was good at but I kept my passions out as if they were sort of something that shouldn't be at work and so I was doing the same 
same stuff but getting less energy from it because I wasn't bothered in the same way as when I'm passionate about the reason for doing that um, work and using those strengths. Does that make sense? It does. Can you give an example? Yeah, so um, actually the what I think this is one I've had in the book as well. Um, I lived in London for um, a number of years, um, certainly before I, when I was, you know, before I was 30, I didn't have kids and I was going out a huge amount. And it was about that time when I was looking seriously about skills I had. And I never considered myself to be great at organising. And it's because I think I inadvertently kept that skill out of the things I used to talk about because I associated it with admin in the roles which I had come across. And yet I was not um, recognising the fact that I was the first one to organise the parties. You know, I'm a very social individual, whether that's, you know, cocktail parties where everybody has to bring different things or setting up you know different themed evenings I think I even you know even built a website and everything for my wedding and I got into details and doing stuff and yet I gave myself no credit for that as a skill because maybe I was thinking it belonged in a world that didn't suit what I thought I was striving for and yet when I put it together and realized when I look at my social life and the things I do and things I enjoy there's a whole bunch of skills there that I'm not recognizing I have and then once you acknowledge them you can see well actually organizing is something that you need to be able to do strategy organizing your thoughts or organizing options to invest in or what or or even organizing large teams as you become a manager and so by looking for things that I'm good at and things I like outside of the work world opens up you know many more opportunities to what you do and a couple of years later um, I went into a job doing strategy where previously I hadn't done that stuff because um, I didn't see it as on the radar because I was looking in small boxes rather than at my whole life. Mm. At the moment, it's a bit of a buyer's market for job applicants, which is a really lovely thing. Um, what what are the two or three things someone can do to choose the right organisation, especially if they're, some, if they're a parent who is really ambitious? Yeah, I mean, choosing organisations... So there's a step, if I may, that I think it comes in between rather than just going and choosing the organisation. And so in the book, I have this concept which is called the cheetah. It's a really a metaphor for how your environment and all the conditions around you, what you need for success. And to cut a long story short, you can describe what you need, your environment in terms of things you need from work, the things that make you feel fulfilled. And if you look at what you need from a job, what you need from a manager and what you need from a company... It gives you a much more balanced and wide view of the things that keep you fulfilled. Because quite often people would look at what they needed from a job, maybe in accounting and in certain things, and yet they get dissatisfied with the vision of the company or the provision for maternity or whatever. So when you're looking for a company, think about what you need across the board and put in things that matter to you about the company. Do you care about the location? the flexible working, the diversity policies, you know, their their approach to global warming, whatever it is right now, and see those as a shopping list of things you need to fill when you look for work, rather than just focusing on the couple of things that you're looking for in the actual role itself. Um, And in there, I encourage people to look at what do you need from a manager? And this is one we never look at, um, and yet we know it's the source of where most people leave work, so what type of manager do you need autonomy, you know, respect, you know, flexibility uh, or simply instruction? There's something that works for everybody. But take a moment to ask yourself the type of manager that works well for you and wherever you're at in your career with relation to your kids too. you know, what 
do you need? And see if you can't get that when going for work, you know, as you're interviewing, to find out if the hiring manager is interviewing you too. What are those things? It's a two-way street when you're um, certainly not just now. So if that makes sense, that's what I encourage people to do. And you've done quite a bit of work on job hunting and people come to you for advice on how to job hunt in order to get those roles. What what do you tell them? Or I guess what do you say in your book about job hunting that isn't obvious? Yeah, so I, I do start by calling it hunting rather than searching because I read lots of stories and people tell me about how many applications they've made and how they don't get answers back. And that is sadly the situation you know we're in because of the supply and demand but equally there's so much automation is likely to be in filtering cvs and doing stuff that you shouldn't expect to have a one-to-one you know answer back but equally i know from experience that there's only a, a small fraction of jobs are the ones that get advertised so if you're actually regardless of how many you apply for if you're just applying for jobs that are being advertised You're not even looking in a big chunk of the opportunities. So I turn it on the head for people and ask them, if you know the sort of work you're looking for and you've given thought to the type of company, why don't you start building connections with people in those companies and find out about the culture? Find out if what your needs from a company are going to be met before you even get into these loops um, interviewing. And you can have, you know, conversations with people whether it's a LinkedIn chat or a, you know a virtual coffee now or a real coffee just to get to know about company cultures and then you can ask for the next connection of people you could maybe speak to to find out more about it and I've used this approach twice actually to get that's how I got into Amazon um, I approached the companies by finding and showing interest in the culture and the companies and then your top of mind and your in the sphere of consideration before jobs find themselves on a job board And there are so many like that because, you know, jobs change, get descoped, rescoped all the time. And referrals are very high on a source for people to come in. Therefore, if you're talking to people, you can get into a loop rather than taking the fraction of opportunities that sit on job boards or, or the like. Fascinating. So in the last three jobs, I'm curious, how many of those did you actually um How did how many did you apply to that were advertised publicly, and how many of those last three did you get through that referral networking element? The last, obviously, the three roles I did three roles at Amazon. They all came around, but uh, there was no job advertised at Amazon. I got into the process, talked to them, and then they helped shape a job that fitted me to come in at director level. So no job was advertised um, that I certainly saw. Prior to that, I was at McCormick for sort of six or seven years, and I came to them at the beginning um, via um, a contact, and I did a short piece of work for somebody, and I was literally in the seat when the managing director role came around, and I was asked, would I do it? Um, And the two promotions or changes of roles I had there, my name was put in a hat because I'd been open around my desire to move my language capabilities and what I was looking to do. So... There was no job advertised for that one either. Prior to that, I did work briefly for myself in between companies. But I think the last time I had applied for a job was in 2004. Um, Funnily enough, I worked at Forrester Research and it was a place that didn't work for me. The job was very different from what I imagined. And it's because I read into the job description as it was advertised, because that was one I applied for. And the reality was a million miles different from what the job had uh, 
description had been and I took it based on a different understanding shall we say um so yeah um it's been 15 years since I answered a job advert (laughs) (laughs) fantastic that is so interesting thank you so much for being so frank about this and I think it's so important because you now know this but if you don't come from an environment where you have someone in your network who tells you that and you just go to the careers counselor who says oh well you should apply to these jobs then you're not going to have the same chance. And you say that you've come from a working class background. And I think it's just so, so important for equality and diversity that we're spreading this message. And, and I guess the message in your book about how to progress your career, which is, which is about that, that networking, referrals, building up a brand and so on. Yeah, I mean, I like to use pictures of anybody thinking of reading the book, which would be lovely. I use storytelling rather than it being very heavy going. So for this particular concept, I'm talking about salmon, you know, jumping up a salmon ladder. And if you look at, you know, where people go up against the flow to get opportunities, they move upstream in the process, which is what I'm suggesting, rather than just waiting downstream. And those salmon who aren't moving up against the flow are the dead bombs. And so, you know, without being too brutal, um, you know, you can see many of these analogies that we laugh at when we hear it, like we're just doing now. And that's where I think the, the real source of learning lessons are that will land in our head. And if you can keep those pictures, then you can do these things in a different way than sitting in front of maybe, you know, a text or some, um, some spreadsheets to do it. But I would also, if I may add on top of that, so many of your listeners may also be hiring managers. And I put that hat on for myself when I think, how do I get my candidates? And I don't always put a job advert out, stick it on, you know, Indeed or Monsterboard or wherever it is, you know, LinkedIn nowadays. Yes, that is one source of candidates, but you also let your network know. You also, you know, let people in the company generally be constantly maybe looking to get into your team because they fancied a job, but it's never been available. And so hiring managers are doing these things anyway. It's not that this is completely radical and that you'll be, you know, stick out like a sore thumb for doing it. It's just the way things are. And I think candidates need to put their feet in hiring managers as well. And I want to just pick up on something else as well, which is your own, basically the way how you make it work. So you started writing the book before you went on, uh, before you started your career break or you you did your career break? I job and then started it. <laughs> so um, no, the idea I I'd had, because it was um, a speech, I mean, I am somebody who does a lot of public speaking. I do enjoy it. Um, just to match up to, to why I do those things. And I had built on the idea that I'd had from speech four years earlier with International Women's Day um, and sort of had the same concept as a framework for development session while I was at Amazon. And essentially what I did by writing the book was I built out the framework. The two mirrors and the cheetah are three um, ways of basically understanding all about yourself, then being that person in reality, and then you know, understanding your whole context and how to work with it. That I had already come up with with the stories behind it because I'd used it in speaking. And so I had not written it down. I had a couple of slides and I had my own sort of verbal stories. So I then wrote that. And then essentially from there, I still felt how do I make this actionable? And so I then really literally back at the drawing board created the various different um, steps and scenarios for job hurt you know, job hunting, internal moves, promotions, and actually coaching other people or dealing with um, poor manager situations, which we don't talk about enough. And so 
there was a mixture of had the idea, but then really shaped it into a book and had to do some very blank page. I was going to ask you actually about how, you know, your work life, well, you don't like the word work life balance. I was going to ask you about that. But now you just mentioned bad managers. I'm sure there are a few listeners who have bad managers. I guess what's the biggest mistake people make when they deal with bad managers or managers who behave badly? And um, what's your advice? Yeah. Yeah. So I, first of all, without, you know, slanting your question there, I don't ever think you're making a mistake. There's no person can tell you how to deal with a bad manager. There's all different situations. We're different. Each manager is different. So I suggest options because the situation itself will dictate what's the best thing to do. But my first piece of advice is do not blame yourself. So regardless of what's going on, it's not your fault. You cannot and should not be feel responsible for your manager's behavior or actions. They should know better. They should keep things out of the workplace and they should know how to get the best out of you. That's the part of the job description of being a manager in my, um, my view. And so understanding that and not not taking it too personal sounds terrible but you know that is the first step and then really understanding what the challenge is is my next piece of advice and you either sort of detach yourself from it and talk to people potentially who are nowhere near your work situation or you seek a sounding board in colleagues maybe you also report to this manager to see is it you is it the whole team is it a bad day is it a repeated pattern because it's very easy to you know jump on one thing and managers have reputations too and that's not an excuse but if we're going to do something about these things formally then you need to be sure that it's a continuous thing not a bad day because we all have bad days and so understanding um and then when you start to do something about it with that manager communication is oh so important and i think finding the best way that you're comfortable in having a neutral conversation with your manager Um, and if that's not possible then with HR in order to make them aware because they may not be even aware that you have this issue and I come across so many very non-self-aware managers that it wouldn't surprise me nine out of ten cases that they've got no idea their employee has an issue right and so this and, and that's not assuming that people know they're treating you in a way that doesn't work for you is an assumption you shouldn't make or is not great to make and finding a way of understanding it um, and communicating to make sure all sides get it is the best way to work through it. And if you can't find something to fix and you can't sort of sort these things out, then my advice is to not take that negative experience with you to the next manager. There are some great managers out there. You just got a random one that didn't work for you and finding a way to sort of just park it as experience and look constructively into the next move rather than taking that bad experience with you is my advice. That's excellent advice. And I do want to ask about the way that you manage your work life and your life life. That I'm sure you don't like that approach either, but I'm sure you have a better way of putting it. But I'm interested specifically in how you shut off, shut down, shut yourself. Um, and specifically, I'm imagining right now you're an author and I hear one of the most intense period is what you're doing right now, which is promoting your book, which is apparently a 24-7 type thing. You know, it's really hard to switch off from all the speeches, all the all the preparation you have to do for these speeches, all the promotion, all the marketing, your social media, and so on and so forth. And I'm just really interested, specifically, how do you shut off? I mean, do you shut off or actually it's not possible and you just... No, no, I, I do. 
But let me caveat it with saying for your listeners, you know, whilst I'm going to say how I do this, I have days where it doesn't work either. Right? No one's perfect. And this is just how I try to do it a bit better every day, as opposed to saying this is how I've completely got it sorted. So, um, you know, we all have our blips and I'm still a real, real person. But what I've even over my career before doing this, it's the same logic that I know what things matter to me and keeping those visible in your own mind when you're busy. So having dinner with the kids, you know, doing my sport, getting my sleep. These are, I call them basic necessities. All of them are really important. And then there's the job and the, or the book. And particularly, I mean, sleep's so underestimated. I think it's an absolute must have and you know, good quality stuff. And I, I wouldn't feel great if I was writing and I never saw the kids, you know, that's not the world we're in. But it's been particularly different because I've spent a lot of the time writing locked down with the family and we're sure we're not all meant to be 24-7 together. So my husband has been a sounding board throughout. I'm sure he'd prefer he wasn't, but that was this, the reality. And it's an isolating experience doing the writing when I'm used to being amongst lots of people. And so recognising where I just draw a line with my thinking out loud for other people's benefit, like my husband, namely, or the kids who, you know, join in with what I'm doing. It's something I have to sort of restrain myself with at the same time as sharing what I'm doing so that they are included. Because I've always, even in the day job um, situations, I let my kids know what I do. And so it's not like mommy's at work and then she's back. They understand where I work and what I do. So they kind of be a part of that rather than, you know, okay, mummy will be back mentally or physically at six o'clock or five, etc. So that's been harder to do, but I just have to remind myself, you know, what's important. And if there is an intense period of time that I let the kids, you know, know, you know, mummy's a bit distracted right now, or actually we'll, we'll have a double time together, you know, tomorrow because I can't fit something in now. Um, I try and make sure I keep true to the things that I have prioritised it's easier to do with sleep and sport because I know I feel so much worse if I don't do them. But I guess every day, it's it's a daily thing to make sure I've got these things. How do I make sure the other things are still in? And I normally put those things in the diary first and then make the most of their time um, afterwards. But with the book writing, it got a little bit more flexible. I'll be very honest. There were some days where I had no option, but I was editing sort of 10 hours a day because I had deadlines for other people. And so making sure that when I had those intense moments, I offset them with an intense moment with the family or doing the other things. And to sort of come back to the point, I think you were sort of asking, I hate this idea of work-life balance. The word work and life suggests one's not part of the other and balance is normally a, a trade-off. We visualize these scales that go up or down when something's losing, the other one is. And I think that's the wrong mental model. And I look at work-life, I call it either integration or harmony. In the, in the book, I call it rhythm. So that you, you know, spend time between the things that you prioritize and you don't try and have some very unachievable static version of balance. Because if you think of things like the Yenga or other stuff, the minute it's not balanced, it's collapsed. It's not a retrievable thing. And balance that's motion, like gyroscopes and stuff, they move, but they go to extremes, but they come back from extremes. And you can have extremes in my idea of work-life balance, so long as you know how to bring yourself back in from those extremes to go to others. And I think it gives you, in my mind, a healthier picture of maintaining a sort of balanced picture over a wider perspective than simply your five days a week split concretely between some things. Mm, that's absolutely, um, I love <laughs> the word 
work-life rhythm. I think it's the best description from my, from me personally that I've come across. Um, there, there, there's none that I've fallen in love with yet uh, between blending, but I love rhythm. I think rhythm is, is the one. Is part of doing that. So I use, you know, obviously when I was at um, Amazon, I was the de- director of toys and my kids were much younger and my youngest said, oh, it was great. You know, you work at the toy shop where the man brings it to the door. I mean, that was like their idea, very perceptive. <laughs> and then they see what I'm doing. They've got behind the book and they've taken it into school because they're proud of it. And so I haven't had to be, have those harsh boundaries because I've integrated it without trying to be too discreet about it. And when I have intense moments now, because there's a writing deadline, I see that the same as somebody who may have a promotion for, you know, in front of them, or actually, let's say you need to be a carer, you know, at home in an intense period, which with COVID is happening, you know, a lot more frequently. Those moments don't mean the end of your balance because you can have a, you know, look at it over a wider period. You could decide to focus on that now and put work to the side. And then later, maybe you do an extended period of work and put other things to the side. The point is, you know what those priorities are, and it's your choice of how and where you spend that time. And that gives you the freedom to feel in control of that rhythm rather than stuck in somebody else's rhythm that's out of, you know, kilter with what you yourself would like. Mm, Absolutely. Um, A lot of people listening right now will want to find more purpose in their life and I would like to so I'm going to put you on the spot I didn't warn you about this but I'm going to ask you for two or three things someone who wants more purpose in their career could do this week practically okay step one always has to start with recognizing so just to, to ask yourself do you want more purpose you need to ask do you have purpose and what are what are your purposes so I would get people to literally take a moment stand still and ask themselves basic things like are you happy are you fulfilled are you feeling valued and these are sort of very simple questions but where you answer yes and no to them or how well you go yeah versus not too sure will give you an idea of where you're um, less fulfilled than maybe where a purpose could be because the second question is well if you get some of those answers to be no or not really why So without investing in anything, you can write it on a piece of paper, you know, back of an envelope, just asking yourself those questions. Because being honest is the first step to be able to do something with purpose, because these things are driven from our heart, from our gut. And it's difficult to go after them when you're doing it for the wrong reasons and not being honest. So that would be that would be my first starter. Secondly, right now is a moment where it's, I think, more than ever possible to find ways to do this either incorporated in the type of work you do or around your work because of the necessity for companies to be much more flexible and equally there's a moment where so many companies are actually also wanting to be purpose-driven whether they're getting behind the environment um, or you know parents or carers or actually you know mental health and that's the all these things are very purpose-driven and you may have a completely different purpose that you're thinking of but there's you could find ways that you could take part or contribute to what your employers are doing just inform yourself find out what's going on there Um, and if not see what there is amongst your network or friends and family group or community to see what it is you might like to do that's more purposeful and my sort of sort of third comment on that is if your company aren't doing something and you find something of purpose that you would like to contribute to, 
don't underestimate the chance of asking your company would they like to support you in it or be part of it. And I was uh, I was thinking the time I was in Poland, I actually got the company to sign up to being part of the food bank chain. I was working in um, you know, condiments and food was the chain we were in. And yet not all companies are looking to do things. They don't always have enough resources to scan all communities for things that are valuable. And you may be the person that brings something not only suitable, but super valuable to them. So don't underestimate your ability to be the person that drives that change. Fantastic. Those are really, really helpful tips. And I love the food bank example. We are coming to the end of our time. Can you tell our listeners where they can connect with you, where they can find out about you, where they can find out about the book? Yeah. So if you'd like to connect with me, I mean, I have a website. It is uh, fionamacdonald.com. If you leave it in the notes, my my surname is quite a strange spelling. All my social links are on there. So you'll find me um, on LinkedIn where I do much of my sort of detailed commenting and posting of of how I think on topics around uh, my values and purpose. The book is available, obviously, on Amazon because I've worked there for over six years. Um, But it's also available on other retailers to be as diverse as possible. But all the links to the different retailers are also on my website. And it's called Two Mirrors and a Cheetah. Think differently, own your career and succeed by being yourself. It's not actually in stores yet. I need to prove myself as a first time author. So online is the only option at the moment. Um, But yeah, it's reasonably accessible. And I would love you to tell me what you think about it. And if you're one of those uh, listeners who prefers to read hundreds of reviews first, there are, I think, about 32 on Goodreads at the moment to give you an idea of how people are perceiving my storytelling. Fantastic. And I can really recommend it. So definitely, if you're thinking about your career, it's definitely worth having a look at your book. A big thank you, Fiona, um, for all your insight. Uh, I really enjoyed having you on the podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much for taking the time to listen today and thank you especially to everyone who's connected recently with me on LinkedIn. It's been so surprising how many of you have reached out and I really really love getting your messages and I always accept your connection requests and I love all your suggestions on where to take the show next. It's obviously a really hard work thing. It might not sound like it but there's a lot of stuff that goes on behind the scenes to put out the podcast and hearing that makes a difference to real life people is just really really lovely so thank you for that if you've liked the podcast and if you like those themes we talk about and you actually want to connect with some real life people around them then you should definitely consider applying to the leaders plus fellowship program which is a high impact program supporting you to progress your career with little ones in tow There is one program left starting in 2023. Applications for that one close on the 31st of October 2023. And the details are on the website leadersplus.org.uk. You can also find info on some of our free events on there. And we always do have hardship fund spaces available. On the fellowship, you get access to really inspirational role models who have been there, done that, with bringing up kids whilst progressing your career. You'll get support with practical challenges, for example, workload management or saying no. You'll get really important time for yourself to think about what you want in your career, what you want for your family and how to make it happen together with a group of very, very supportive and very amazing peers and some very experienced facilitators as well. So if you want to look at it, then 
leaderspass.org.uk is the place to go. In our last cohort, more than half have got promoted or got additional senior responsibility by the end of the programme. And they're all involved in some shape or form in driving change for working parents. And I should say the satisfaction with work-life balance have gone up significantly as well. I think it's more than doubled compared to the starting point of the programme. So I'm really pleased with that. Big thank you for all your support and especially also to all of those who've left reviews for the podcast. It is such a helpful thing and I'm extremely grateful for all of you who've done that or who've shared this episode with a friend that could benefit from it. Thank you and enjoy the rest of your week.